0: Welcome. Thank you for joining us again. Three Cosmic Messages is a series of presentations on the book of Revelation. We are actually on number 12. We've journeyed through the great messages of the three angels outlined in Revelation 14, 6 to 12. There are three messages pictured as being carried by angels in mid-heaven outlined in Revelation 14, verse 6 to 12. We're on the last of those three angels' messages, or the third angel's message. That message says, outlined here in Revelation chapter 14, verse 9, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or in his hand, he himself shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup, of his indignation. This is a solemn warning from a God who has a heart of immense, infinite, incomprehensible love. So as we go through this second message on the mark of the beast, you'll remember that I presented one last time and this is the second part of that message, a two-part message. Remember where the message is coming from. It's coming from the heart of one that loves his people beyond what we possibly can ever imagine. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we launch into this message, help it be saturated with, dripping with love. Help it be filled with grace. But Lord, we know that your warnings sometimes are straightforward. They are urgent. You pull the curtain aside and help us see truth from error. So help us understand that as we study. In Christ's name, amen. The topic of this presentation is the seal of God. In Mark of the Beast, part two, these three angels flying in mid-heaven give God's last message for humanity. This message is a message to prepare people to stand when Jesus comes, to prepare people for earth's final crisis, a crisis that's going to break upon this world as an overwhelming surprise. The central issue in this final conflict, this age-long controversy between good and evil, is over worship. This battle began in heaven. A rebel angel challenged the government of God. This angel claimed that God's commands are arbitrary, that they cannot be obeyed. The creature, the one created by God, this angel of dazzling brightness that was created perfect in the heavenly realms, chose to rebel against God. Now, how rebellion occurs in a perfect world, that's what the Bible calls the mystery of iniquity. But the Bible tells us what went on behind the scenes, what went on in Lucifer's mind, that he wanted to rule, wanted to set his throne above the throne of God. So the issue was one of authority, the issue was one of worship, and one of obedience. Now, in every generation, starting at Eden, The evil one has led men and women to disobey God. In heaven, the devil said to the angels, it's not necessary to obey. One third of the angels accepted his lie and followed his delusions. When Lucifer came to earth, he said to Eve, is it necessary to obey? Has God said you can't eat of that tree? And again, the issue was one of obedience or disobedience down through the Old Testament and into the New Testament era. The same issue, obedience, worship, loyalty, the authority of God. These are great issues in the controversy between good and evil in Christ and Satan. And In the last days, God will demonstrate that His gracious commands are for our best good. We do not keep the commandments of God in order to be saved, but because we are saved. So our obedience springs from a heart of love. We love him because he first loved us. Now, who is this beast power? We introduced this last time. What is the mark of the beast? And what are the real issues over worship in the last days of verse history? The beast we pointed out is not a political power, but it's rather a religious political power or a religious counterfeit power. We showed that last time. It would arise out of Rome. The dragon, Satan, working through pagan Rome would give the seat of government or authority to this new power. That happened with papal Rome. It would become a worldwide system of worship. That as well happened with papal Rome. It would be described as a blasphemous power. Now, that seems rather strange why would a religious power be claimed a blasphemous power? You'd think that a blasphemous power would be an atheistic power. But that word blasphemy is used to identify the beast power and the fallen religious power, the same as the beast power called Babylon of the Antichrist. Let's look at some of the references in the Bible that explain to us the use of this word blasphemy and what's it all about. Revelation 13, verse 1 says, I stood upon the stand of the sea. I saw a beast rising up, a power out of the sea. He has seven heads and ten horns, ten divisions of the Roman Empire. On his horns, ten crowns. That's the kingly nations of Europe. And on his heads, a blasphemous name. Again, you have that idea of blasphemy on the name of this beast. He opened his mouth to blaspheme against God, blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. So, you have blasphemy associated with the beast power. This is true also in Revelation 17, verse 3. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman. Remember, we studied that a woman in Bible prophecy represents the church. A fallen woman, a harlot woman who's left her true lover, represents a church in apostasy. So, this woman sitting on the scarlet colored beast, the fallen church directing the beast power, the state has a cup full of names of blasphemy. Again, blasphemy is associated with the beast, with the Antichrist, with this fallen power that has mystery Babylon the Great on her forehead. Now, how do you define blasphemy? Let's go to the Bible. The Jewish leaders accused Jesus of blasphemy. Was Jesus the blasphemer? Absolutely not. He was all he claimed to be. But the Jewish leaders Accused him of blasphemy. Why? John 10, verse 33. The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, maketh yourself God. So any human being that claims the privileges and prerogatives of God's equal is guilty of blasphemy. Was Jesus a blasphemer? Certainly not. Why not? Because he was the divine Son of God, tabernacled in human flesh. Jesus' claims were true, but when a mortal human being claims the privileges and prerogatives of God as an equal, that then is blasphemy. In Luke chapter five, verse 21, we find another claim by the scribes and Pharisees that Jesus was a blasphemer. They said, "Who is this who speaks blasphemies, who can forgive sins, but God alone?" So there are two characteristics of blasphemy to biblical examples. First, if any man pretends to be, assumes the privilege and prerogatives or claims to be God, that's blasphemy. Secondly, if any man claims the power to forgive sins, that's blasphemy. Why so? Why is that so? It's because that human being exalts themselves above God, or that human being takes the place of God. Does the Roman Church that we've identified as this beast power growing out of pagan Rome and becoming a worldwide system of worship. Does its leader claim the privilege and prerogatives of God's equal? Do its priests claim the authority to forgive sins? The Roman Church has two distinctive doctrines, which the Bible does label or does call as blasphemy. The Roman Church claims that the power of forgiveness or absolution is vested in the priests by Christ himself. Now, let's go directly to some church sources. If you want to find out anything about an individual organization that is true, you should definitely go directly to their sources. So let's look at the sources. One source written for Catholic priests says this, Seek where you will, through heaven and earth, And you'll find but one created being who can forgive the sinner, who can free him from the claims of hell. That extraordinary being is the priest, the Catholic priest. Now, this is a Catholic manuscript, Catholic book, document that is saying this. I continue. Who can forgive sins except God? Was the question which the Pharisees sneeringly asked, who can forgive sins? Is the question which the Pharisees of the present day ask also? So it's linking the Pharisees of the past, first century, with what they call Pharisees of today. They're asking who can forgive sins. Now, this is Michael Mueller in the book The Catholic Priest, printed in Baltimore, Catholic Imprimata, 1876, pages 78 and 79. Now, he answers the question this way. I answer, there is a man on earth that can forgive sins, and that man is the Catholic priest. We go on, though. That's not one isolated statement. In the Bible, in contrast to that, we find 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. See, what, what led to this idea that the Catholic priest was the medium between God and man that could give sin? The idea was that human beings were not righteous enough. Human beings were not holy enough. We could not approach God, so we needed a mediator. That idea is true. We are unholy. We are unrighteous. We cannot approach God. We need a mediator. But thank God there is one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ. You know, I mentioned in an earlier presentation that I was brought up in a lovely Roman Catholic home, and and this text means a great deal to me because I will never forget the hot, July day in Norwich, Connecticut, when my mom was sitting in the backyard, I had accepted Jesus Christ, I had accepted him as my true mediator, but my mother was still locked in many of the superstitions and falsehoods of Catholicism. And I remember going to her and saying, Mom, you know, I was taught from the catechism by the priest that there's one mediator between God and man, and and that's the priest. And I couldn't approach God because I needed a mediator. And I opened my Bible, and I read 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. There is one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. And I said, Mom, we have a mediator, and that's Jesus. Mom, you can kneel by your bed. You can come directly to Jesus. And I can remember her glossy eyes and the little tear that came down her cheeks to understand for the first time in her life that Jesus was her Redeemer. Jesus was her Savior. Jesus was the one that could forgive her sins. No human being could do that. Now, since the priest himself is a sinful human being, he cannot be our mediator because he also needs a mediator. You know, not long ago, in fact, not so many years ago in the late 20th century, in the late 1900s, 1984, in fact, so it's not some ancient document. The Pope said that there was no forgiveness directly from God. We find that as a headline by one of the staff writers in the Los Angeles Times. No forgiveness comes directly from God, the Pope says. Well, the Bible says something different. What does the Bible say? It says 1 John chapter 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to do what? Forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we do the confessing, God will do the forgiving. We need a sacrifice, not the sacrifice of the mass, but the sacrifice of Christ. We need a priest, we cannot come before God and Jesus indeed is our priest. The earthly sacrifice of the mass can never substitute for the atonement provided through Jesus. In Christ, by Christ, because of Christ, we are made at one with God. He is our dying lamb. He is our living priest. He appears before the very throne of God for you and for me. But yet, the church teaches something quite different and amazing. It says, the Pope is of so great dignity and so exalted that he is not a mere man, but as it were God and the vicar of God. Remember one of the definitions of blasphemy is one when one exalts themselves above God or takes the privileges and prerogatives of God, claims equality with God. Notice, I go on reading this statement. Hence the Pope, according to this Catholic document, is crowned with a triple crown as king of heaven and of earth and of the lower regions. The Pope is as it were God on earth chief king of kings, to whom has been entrusted by the omnipotent God direction of the heavenly kingdom. That's Louis Ferris in his article on the Pope in Prompta Bibliotheca, volume 6, comes directly from Italy, this Catholic document defining the Pope's role as indeed God on earth. Pope Leo XIII urged complete submission and obedience of the will to the church and the Roman pontiff as to, get this, God himself. You find that in the great encyclical letters of Pope Leo XIII. Pope Leo XIII also said in an encyclical letter, June 20, 1894, we the popes hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. So it's very, very clear that the papacy fits the description of Revelation 13. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3 and 4 says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, that's Christ's second coming, will not come unless there is a falling away. That's a falling away from truth. That comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So here, Revelation 14 describes the beast's power and eventually the mark of the beast. Revelation 13 describes the, the characteristics of the beast. Second Thessalonians says that there would be a power that would rise up claiming equality with God We see that indeed in the Roman system. In a variety of symbols, all pointing to the same conclusion, the Roman church is identified as the beast power of Revelation 13 and Revelation 14. It's a worldwide system of worship. It receives the seat of its government, its throne from pagan Rome. Its leader claims the authority of God. Its priests claim the divine right to forgive sins. But yet there's another proof, a mathematical proof. Revelation 13, verse 5 says, He, the beast power, was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue 42 months. What does that mean? The authority to continue 42 months. Well, in the Bible, as we've studied in this set, in this series, One prophetic day equals one literal year. We call that the day-year principle. Each prophetic day in the Bible equals a literal year. Now, that's not every time a day is mentioned in the Bible. In the Bible, when a day is mentioned, it's a day. But when you have prophetic beasts, when the Bible says, I stood upon the sand of the sea, saw a great beast rise up out of the sea, and his mouth was like a lion, feet like the feet of a bear, and uh, he had a... He was like a dragon and uh, like a leopard. When you see all of those composite symbols, and you know that's not a literal animal, so when you have symbolic prophecy, you also have symbolic time periods. Now, in the Bible, one prophetic day, as we've mentioned, equals one literal year. Numbers 14.34 says, every day for a what? A year. Ezekiel 4, 6, I've appointed you each day for a what? A year. One prophetic day equals a year. Now, in biblical times, there were 30 days in a literal month. So if you have 42 months where this beast power would reign, 42 times 30 would equal 1260 prophetic days or 1260 literal years. In the ancient calendars of often the Egyptians, the Hindus, the Assyrians, the Hebrews, often you'll have these 360 days in a year. We didn't begin to develop the 365 and a fourth day calendar until later. So the point is they had 30 days often in 12 equal months, 1260 years of literal time or 1260 days prophetic time. Now, let me give you a little history of Christianity, what happened. Babylon rules, Medo-Persia rules, Greece rules, Rome rules. The Roman Empire is broken up. As the Roman Empire ruled from 168 BC to about 351 AD, in the days of Constantine, 30 years before that, when the barbarian tribes are attacking Europe and coming down, Christianity is legalized by Constantine throughout the empire. Now, the reason he does that is he wants to unite the empire. He wants to unite paganism and Christianity so he doesn't lose his empire. But as things continue to fall apart, Constantine moves his capital in AD 330 from Rome to Constantinople, which is now Istanbul, Turkey. As he does that, he leaves this leadership vacuum in Rome. And the Pope then fills this void and becomes not only a powerful religious leader, but a powerful political force to be reckoned with in Europe. So for this period of time, you have the pap- papacy, which is a strong in its leadership, and you still have Roman emperors. In 538 AD, Justinian, the pagan Roman emperor, officially grants to the Roman Bishop, the role of defender of the emperor's empire, the definer of heretics and the defender of the faith. It is in this year that the last of the barbarian tribes who do not accept the papacy are driven out of Rome and in 538 AD, the Pope becomes the supreme ruler of the Roman church and the church throughout Christendom and at that period, Church and state unite, and this period called the Dark Ages begins. So if this 1260-year period of papal supremacy, of church-state union begins in 538, and you go down the timeline, 1260 years, it would take you to 1798. Who was ruling Europe in 1798? What did the Bible predict? Revelation 13, verse 10. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. The Bible predicted that the papal power would have a deadly wound and go into captivity then in 1798. Napoleon is ruling. He looks to the south. He sees his rival power in the Pope of Rome. Sent Berthier, his general, down to Rome in 1797. Berthier comes back empty-handed. The prophecy wasn't to be fulfilled until 1798. 1798, Berthier returns, he takes the Pope captive, and Pius VI dies in exile in Valencia in France in 1799. Exactly fulfilling the prophecy. So as we look at this prophecy, what do we see? We see a power, the papacy, growing out of pagan Rome. We see it becoming a worldwide system of worship. We see its priests claiming that they can forgive sins, its leader claiming the authority of God, and we see it ruling for 1260 years. We see then the papal power going into captivity, and many people at that time felt that the papacy was dead. But the Bible predicted a revival of papal power. It predicted at the time of the end that once again church and state would unite. Do we see that taking place? Revelation 13 verse 12 says that the deadly wound would be healed, that the papacy would rise again to prominence. And today we see that prophecy fulfilled around the world as the Pope travels the world as an ambassador of peace, as he travels the world and thousands and millions gather as Political leaders kneel to kiss his ring as he addresses congresses around the world and parliaments around the world, as presidents come to greet him with their families, as he comes to address even Congress in the United States and bless America. The Pope has arisen as an ambassador of peace Even atheistic countries welcome him there. He is recognized as the moral leader of the world. You know, the latest research on moral leadership finds this, that employees, managers, and executives believe that the need for moral leadership is more urgent than ever. With politicians today losing the confidence of the population... With with politicians facing moral falls and dishonesty, with corruption in government, with the institutions of society failing, men and women are looking for moral leadership. Millions of people wonder, where is someone who is morally fit to lead the world? Could it be that the devil himself is preparing an amazing deception. The word "antichrist" doesn't mean against Christ. It means another Christ. Could it actually be that the devil is preparing a deception where church and state will unite again in a time of chaos and calamity, where the Pope of Rome will appear as the moral leader of the world, where human decrees and commands will be passed, compelling worship, In a world of uncertainty and instability, the devil is planning one of his greatest deceptions for humanity. In a world of rising hunger and increasing poverty, there is the need for moral leadership. In a world of environmental disaster, a growing threat for nuclear weaponry, and certainly in a world where pandemics run wild and viruses seem to be out of control, threatening the lives of millions, there's the need for somebody to step forward. There's the need for moral leadership in our world. At a time of economic crisis where the world's economy hangs on a slender thread, there's the need for moral leadership. And what does the Bible predict? The Bible predicts that the solution to the problems of this world is not a human being and a church-state union, but it is rather the coming of the Prince of Peace, There will never be peace on earth until the prince of peace comes. The leader that we are looking for, the true moral leader, is Jesus Christ. He is the blessed hope of the world. He is the one that will come as king of kings and lord of lords. He is the one that will stream down the corners of time. Every human leader will let us down. Every human leader will fail us. But there is one that will never fail us. He is the one that came Tabernacled in human flesh. He is the one that defeated Satan. He is the one that died on the cross. He is the one that rose from the dead. He is the one that intercedes in heaven. He is our Lord and Savior that will come in the clouds of heaven. Now, what vehicle do you think the devil might suggest to unify society? What vehicle might the beast power use to, to, to unite the entire world? Maybe history will give us a lesson. The Roman Empire was falling apart. The Roman Empire was crumbling. And as it was, Constantine, the pagan Roman emperor, tried to unite church and state. In an attempt to save his empire, Constantine turned to religion. I wonder. In a world that has a shaky foundation, in a world that is falling apart, could it possibly be that the world at a time of economic, political crisis, natural disasters, at a time with the threat of thermonuclear war and viruses and pandemics, at a time of such uncertainty, could it be that men and women would turn to religion as the savior of the world? That happened back in the days of Constantine, but something more specific. Constantine attempted to blend pagan ideas and ideas from Christianity. And one of those things that he attempted to do was establish a common day of worship as a day of rest and peace for the world. Constantine passed the first Sunday law and then the church through its decrees and through its councils reinforced that Sunday law decree. Arthur Wingle, in a book called Paganism in Our Christianity, page 145, makes this remarkable statement. The church made a sacred day of Sunday, largely because it was the weekly festival of the sun, for it was a definite Christian policy, now notice, definite Christian policy, to take over the pagan festivals endeared to the people by tradition and give them Christian significance. A common day of worship had the potential then to unite a divided world. And a common day of worship could be the very strategy that Satan is using at a time of enormous crisis in attempt to unite the world. Since the change of the Bible Sabbath was instituted by a church state union in the early centuries, worship on the first day of the week really is a sign of people. Authority to change the law of God from the Sabbath, the seventh day, worshiping the Creator. S- someone or some group must have authority that is falsely assumed to be higher than God's authority. How did this change of the Bible Sabbath ever take place? It took place in the early centuries through an am- amalgamation, union of church and state, where pagan practices were brought in. That's how it took place. And the Church actually acknowledges this. The Church of Rome claims that Sunday is really the mark of its ecclesiastical authority. Look, here's Louis Gaston Segur in his book Plain Talk About Protestantism Today, published in, in London, 1874. He says, "'Thus the observance of Sunday by Protestants is a homage they pay in spite of themselves to the authority of the Catholic Church.'" See, the church changed the Sabbath falsely from the seventh day of the week that was written with the finger of God on the tables of stone, never to be changed when God said, remember it. The church changed it in the early centuries to accommodate paganism in a divided empire that was falling apart. Could that ever happen again? We shall see. Now, notice, this statement goes on. Of course, the Catholic Church in the American Quarterly Review says... Continuing, of course, the Catholic Church claims that the change was her act. That's the change of the Sabbath. And the act is the mark of her ecclesiastical power and the authority in religious matters. So the beast power that rose out of Rome is identified as the papacy, the Roman church. Not certainly an individual pope, but the system that grew out of there. Are there many Roman Catholics that love Christ? There are. Are there many that have never heard these things? Some possibly watching this broadcast? Absolutely, certainly. Do they have the mark of the beast today? Definitely not. Nobody today has the mark of the beast. What does Revelation 14 predict? Revelation 14 is God's final call to come out of every law-breaking church. Revelation 14 is God's appeal not to receive the mark of the beast. It comes from the heart of a loving God, a heart of God that overflows with love for you and for me, the heart of a God that wants you saved, the heart of a God that wants you with him in eternity more than anything else. The mark of the beast is the change of the Sabbath substituting man's authority for God's authority. So the issue is much more than the issue of a day. Some people say to me, what difference does a day make? It's the issue of authority. Does any human power have the authority to change the very law of God? It's an issue of worship. Who do we worship? The creator or The creature whose laws are supreme, the laws of man or the laws of God. Though no one has the mark of the beast today, Revelation predicts that there will come a time of international crisis and that at that point, the Pope will emerge as the moral leader of the world. At that point, the vehicle to unite the world will be used to accomplish this goal of world unification and that's going to be Sunday worship. Pope Benedict XVI, in June 6, 2012, said this. You say, well, how could that ever happen? Look at this encyclical. He says, the demands of work can't bully people out of needed time off. And then he goes on to say, Sunday must be a day of rest for everyone. Notice, not only for Catholics, but for everyone. Why? So people can be free to be with their families and with God. By defending Sunday, one defends human Freedom. So here the Pope of Rome is suggesting that Sunday should be a day off. It should be a day for social interaction. He even says it should be a day for nations to rest so the earth can rest in a time of climate change. He, often say, he also says it should be a day with our families and a day of worship. So the Pope, who's emerging as the great moral leader of the world at a time of insecurity and international crisis, suggests that Sunday, the first day of the week, can be one of those vehicles that unites all humanity. He goes on to say, Sunday is the day of the Lord and of man. Well, the Bible says that the Sabbath is the Lord's day. Mark chapter 2, verse 27 and 28, it says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Luke chapter 6, verse 5 says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Matthew 12, verse 8 says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. I go on with the quote. The Pope says, Sunday is the day of the Lord and of man, a day which, notice the word again, everyone must be able to be free, free for the family and free for God. So the Pope presents the Sabbath that he calls Sunday, the Sunday Sabbath, not the true Bible Sabbath, but he presents that as a day of freedom. So the idea is the whole world unites and there is freedom for everybody, freedom from work, freedom to be with your family, freedom to worship God. What about those that eventually conscientiously could not go along? Ellen White, in the book Great Controversy, pages 592 and onward, makes this observation. She really echoes the words of Revelation 13 about the beast and no man being able to buy or sell. She expands on that. She says, Those who honor the Bible Sabbath will be denounced as enemies of law and order, as breaking down the moral restraints of society, causing anarchy and corruption, and calling down the judgments of God upon the earth. Their conscientious scruples will be pronounced obstinacy. In other words, they'll be called stubborn because they don't go along with the majority. Stubbornness and contempt of authority. They will be accused of disaffection toward the government. As the movement for Sunday enforcement becomes bolder and more decided, the law will be invoked against commandment keepers. They will be threatened with fines and imprisonment. And some will be offered positions of influence and other rewards and advantages as inducements to renounce their faith. Isn't this exactly what Revelation 13 says? It says, unless they receive the mark of the beast, they cannot buy, they cannot sell, that eventually a death decree will hang over their head, but God's people will be sealed for eternity. In this time of crisis, rather than accepting the mark of human authority, rather than accepting a false Sabbath, God's people indeed will be sealed for eternity. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 15, If you love me, do what? If you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. In the heart of those commandments is God's seal. Now, seals were used in ancient times to notarize or attest to the authenticity of documents. Every king would have his seal. Every political leader would have their seal. And when they stamped that seal, they stamped authenticity upon a document. The seal indicated that the document was genuine. Now, to be authentic, a seal can contain various elements. Many seals, not all of them, had at least three. The name of the sealer, the title of the sealer, the territory of the sealer. The seal, in essence, had to identify the one whose authority it was. In Isaiah chapter 8, verse 16, the Bible says, bind up the testimony and seal the law among my disciples. So God's seal is found in the heart of his law. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, 9, and 11, we find that the Sabbath, right in the center of God's law, has the identifying characteristics of the seal. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor into all your work, But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. For in six days, the Lord. He is our sealer. He is the one who has authority. He's the Lord. He is the maker of heavens and earth. That's his title, the maker of heavens and earth, the creator. And what did he create? Here's his territory, the seed, all that in them is. He rests the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blesses the Sabbath day and hallows it. Let's look at it this way. Here are the elements of the authentic seal found in the heart of God's law. It has the name or the originator of the seal. He's the Lord your God. Check it off. He, it has the title of the sealer. He's the one who made or he's the creator. Another check. He, it's his territory, the heavens and earth. So here in the book of Revelation, there are two worships. Worship of the creator, coming and worshiping him on the Sabbath, entering into that Sabbath rest, resting from our works, trusting in his, resting in his grace, resting in the one that made us, having a sense that we're not some speck of cosmic dust, but he created us, he made us, he fashioned us, We are anchored in him. We are sons and daughters of the king of the universe, the creator. We rest in the fact he created us. We rest in the fact that he redeemed us. We rest in the fact that he's coming again for us. True Sabbath worship is worship of the creator, but there's also worship of the beast. The acceptance of a counterfeit Sabbath that's a substitute that came into the church in the time of compromise that will be a vehicle of unity in the last days with a church state union. The Bible says, Revelation 7, verse 1 and 2, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we've sealed the servants of God in their foreheads. Now notice the seal is received only in the forehead. Why? Because the forehead is a symbol of reason. It's a symbol of conscience. It's a symbol of judgment. It's a symbol of the freedom of choice. God never coerces. The devil either deceives you by putting the mark of the beast in the forehead or he deceives you by putting it on your hand. That is to say, he pressures you. He can work, coerces you. But God never pressures the seal of God. So the plagues do not fall on the earth, the seven last plagues, until the message of God goes out leading men and women back to jesus leading them to the authority of scripture leading them to worship him as creator jesus respects our freedom to choose and he invites us to let him shape our mind with the things of eternity so we cannot be moved from the anchor of our faith in the very word of god the mark of the beast is received in the forehead or in the hand indicating that people are either intellectually convinced and by the choice they make to accept Satan's lies or they are forced against their will to accept the mark of the beast through an economic boycott or the threat of death. Satan's last deception, fueled by spiritualism, fueled by false miracles at a time of international crisis, will undermine the law of God undermine the authority of the creator the sabbath was a sign given at creation for all mankind satan hates the creator he hates the fact that jesus can create and he cannot and so he's attacked christ he's attacked the creator he's attacked the authority of creation The great controversy between good and evil will bring all humanity to a test. And that's what these three cosmic messages are about. They're messages of love to your heart and to mine by a God that wants you with him forever. Through Sabbath observance, we concede to God, his position as creator. We accept ours as creatures and we open our hearts to serve him as our Lord. The Sabbath places us in a special position of worship and loyalty to the creator. That's why it is singled out as the keystone commandment, the sign or seal of the eternal everlasting covenant. God wants the universe to behold in his people the triumph of grace. Church and state will unite. Like in the days of Constantine, Like in the days of the Dark Ages, the powerful church will superimpose its laws on humanity. State powers, government powers, political powers, desiring to forego a crisis with this world falling apart, thinking indeed that if they unify, God's blessing will be upon the world. Satan fuels this false revival with counterfeit miracles. The sick are miraculously healed. Now, God's going to work miracles at the time of the end. Don't misunderstand me. But the devil is going to use false miracles. How do you tell the difference between the false and the true? In genuine miracles, we are always led back to obedience. In false miracles, men and women are led to be emboldened in disobedience, disobedience to the laws of health and every nerve and tissue in their body, disobedience to the law of God, including the Sabbath. Genuine miracles lead us to allegiance to God and accept his authority and genuine obedience. False miracles lead us to be emboldened in the sensational, caught up in the miraculous rather than the clear teachings of the living word of God. God is looking for a group of people who demonstrate the triumph of his grace in the darkest hours of earth's history. The light of Jesus' grace is going to shine through his people in the most fierce times of persecution. Just like Jesus on the cross trusted the Father in darkness, they, through their faith of Jesus, living in their hearts, because their faith in Christ brings the faith of Christ into their lives, Because the spirit of Christ lives within them, they are strengthened and empowered. It is written of this group of people, Revelation 14, verse 12, Here is the patience of the saints. Where are they? Here are those that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. They are God's honor convoy. They are God's light in a world of darkness. They are God's people a number of years ago, 1741. You remember the story of the writing of Handel's Messiah. You may have at Christmas time or some other time of the year, listened to that fabulous, fabulous orchestra rendition with the choruses and the choirs singing Handel's Messiah And your heart thrilled with that, but you may not be aware of the story behind the writing of Handel's Messiah. At the time that Handel wrote the Messiah, he was quite discouraged. In fact, he was quite depressed. He was bankrupt or near bankrupt. He had a few dollars left, but very, very little. The creditors were coming after him. He was right on the verge of bankruptcy. His health had really broken. He hadn't had much success in the last musical scores that he wrote. He was about ready to give up. But as he was, he began to think of Jesus. And he read the book of Revelation. And as he read the book of Revelation, he was impressed With Revelation 11, verse 15, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. He shall reign forever and ever and ever in the darkness that comes in the future. When we hang on by faith in the time of greatest challenges, this promise will inspire our hearts as it inspired Handel's heart. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Handel continued to read. And he read Revelation 19, 6. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thunder saying, Hallelujah, for our Lord, our God, omnipotent reigns. You remember that from Handel's Messiah. Hallelujah, the Lord, our God, omnipotent reigns. When the beast's power enforces his will upon humanity, we can sense that we are on the winning side that the power of the living Christ will deliver us, and one day he will reign. Handel read further, Jesus is king of kings. Jesus is Lord of lords. He then began to write. And as he wrote, it was as if his pen was divinely guided, and it was when one of his associates, a servant, came in after Handel had finished the Messiah, In a very short amount of time, George Frederick Hendel's head was in his hands. He looked up with tears coming down his face. And he said, I did think I saw heaven open and saw the very face of God. Jesus comes. He streams down the cart of the sky. One day, you and I will see the face of God Hang on, my brother. Hang on, my sister. Maybe for you, the time of trouble is right now. Maybe for you, the time of trouble is in your home. Maybe for you, the time of trouble is with your health. Maybe for you, the time of trouble is with your finances. But you're going through some time of trouble right now. And you might say to me, Pastor, don't talk to me about a future time of trouble because I'm overwhelmed now. One day, Jesus will come. Look beyond what is to what will be. Look beyond the darkness to the light that is dawning in your life through Christ right now cling to the promise this life is not all there is Jesus Christ is coming again he will stream down the carters of time he is our blessed hope listen as Charles comes and sings a song about the return of Jesus the Savior can't be far away the signs of the times all indicate that the signs of the times are revealing that we are headed for crisis but the message of the three angels speaks to this generation it calls us to prepare for the soon coming of Christ it calls us on our knees it calls us to seek God it calls us to open our hearts to his grace it calls us to receive his power it calls us to the faith of Jesus listen as Charles sings
1: There'll be no dark valleys when Jesus comes. There'll be no dark valley when Jesus comes. There'll be no dark valley when Jesus comes to gather his loved ones home. To gather his loved ones home. To gather his loved ones home. There'll be no dark valley when Jesus comes to gather His loved ones home. There'll be no more sorrow when Jesus comes. There'll be no more sorrow when Jesus comes, but a glorious tomorrow when Jesus comes. To gather his loved ones home. To gather his loved ones home. To gather his loved ones home. There'll be no more sorrow when Jesus comes. To gather his loved ones home. And there'll be songs of greetings when Jesus comes. There'll be songs of greeting when Jesus comes And a joyful meeting when Jesus comes To gather his loved ones home To gather his loved ones home To gather his loved ones home, loved ones home. There'll be songs of greetings when Jesus comes To gather his loved ones home. Now there'll be no dark valley when Jesus comes. There'll be no dark valley when Jesus comes. There'll be no darker valley when Jesus comes. To gather his loved ones home. To gather his loved ones home. To gather his loved one's home. There'll be no darker valley when Jesus come. To gather his loved one's home. To gather his loved one's home.
0: That's why he's coming to gather his loved one's home. Jesus is lonely without you. Heaven would be a lonely place for him if you were not there. There's a place in his heart only for you. You say, Mark, how can that be true? How could it be true that there's a place in Jesus' heart only for me? Are you a mother or a father? you have one child, two children, three children, let's suppose, tragically so, that you lost a child. Did the other two's love make up for the one you lost? If you had five children, one child died, would the love of four make up for the one that died? That one that died is special. That one that died has a place in your heart that nobody else can fill. But who is it that put in the heart of a father or a mother the capacity to love two children, three children, five or seven or eight? Who did that? It is God. And in God's heart, there is a heart of infinite love. There's an ocean of love in God's heart. And the God that placed in a mother's heart the ability to love two children or three or more has in his heart the capacity to love an infinite amount. And if you're not there, he's going to miss you forever. The reason he gave these three cosmic messages, the reason he gave them in Revelation, is because he knew in the last generation, you would be there. It is his foreknowledge and his wisdom He saw you. And he's appealing to you to step out and follow him. This may be new for you, but he invites you today to step out from the majority and follow him. You may be an Adventist and have heard these messages before, but there's some decision God wants you to make. It's not only intellectual material for our mind, it's for our heart. It's the message of Christ to change our life. Is there some cherished idol in your life? Some sin you've been clinging to? Some habit you've not given up? The appeal of God is to worship the Creator and find power in Him to overcome. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you just now. We come from varied backgrounds. We come from different understandings. But Lord, we come. We come to you as our creator and asking you to recreate our hearts. We come to you as our redeemer, asking you to give us peace and grace and forgiveness. We come to you in hope of the coming King and we long to be caught up with you and meet you in the air and live with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen. May the grace of Christ and the power of Christ and the love of Christ daily fill your life. Until he comes again, in Jesus' name, is my prayer.